Welcome to Not Artificially Sweetened, a weekly podcast where we reflect on all things diabetes. Your hosts are specialist physician Stan Landau and diabetes specialist nurse Michael Brown. We are passionate about using our talents to change lives for the better. Our mission is to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Nothing is off the table here as we discuss real people, their real issues and stories, and together discover real answers to many vexing practical issues in diabetes and its management. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our next Not Artificially Sweetened podcast. Joining me as always is my great colleague, friend and mentor, Michael Brown. Thank you, Stan, and welcome, everyone. I hope your long Easter weekend was a good one, Michael. I know mine was. Absolutely. Time for rest and reflection. Always good for the soul. We get into the second quarter of the year. We've spoken on previous podcasts about the emergence of the flu season. So for those listeners who have yet to contemplate the flu jab, now is the appropriate time to offset that risk and pay better attention to mitigating the risk that flu brings with it, particularly for people with diabetes. Michael, it was nice to have some days off from the clinic, but I was thinking back in the days just prior to the Easter break, there was a single day in that week that I saw three married couples and each of the partners within those couples had type 2 diabetes. And I thought about that and said, you know, it's not the first time I've seen that scenario happen. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the literature is quite abundant that married couples, particularly if one partner already has type 2 diabetes, places a risk for the development of type 2 on the other partner. Mm -hmm. Fascinating biological reasons when you go into the literature and deal with that. Very nice to have a joint interaction because I find you get a very good sense of what's happening in the home. Mm. You often have to become the marriage counselor in part. You know, he said, she said, or they said rather, but really nice clinical work to be able to deal with this. And in many cases, because these are typically older people with type 2 diabetes, really get the pleasure of seeing couples who've been married 50 years and more, which I suppose is rare in the modern day. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we've spoken about in terms of the management of diabetes, these golden cohorts, people who get it right and uh, their management of diabetes over many many, many years is good. And I guess good diabetes management, good marriage management mm. in that sense and vice versa. And kudos to those couples who are doing this on the joint, so to speak. Mm. I think it's an important point, Stan, you raise the possibility that married couples can increase risk in other partners. Conversely, they can reduce risk by leading the way in better lifestyle choices. But it is hard because generally couples tend to do things together. But very important, the concept of social support in diabetes. So for all those couples out there and our regular listeners, thanks for tuning in. Remember, these free podcasts are available for download on many platforms, including the Google Podcast Manager as well as Stitcher. Our preference would be for you to listen and download on the Spotify platform. And within that platform, you will find our listener polls. You can participate in those. And we'd be most grateful if you could give us a like and share. And we use that information from the polls to help develop and guide us in terms of where we take these podcasts going forward. Michael, we've got a busy session this week, and I'm going to hand over to you. Right. Thank you, Stan. So we are really privileged to have a wonderful advocate for people with diabetes in the studio with us this week, Bridget McNulty. Welcome, Bridget. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. If you've been listening to our podcast series so far, you'll actually know Bridget's voice very well. She introduces the Sweet Life Diabetes community message each week. And I had said to her just now when we came into studio that I was amazed at all the insights she's bringing into our podcast each week. So maybe just start with that, Bridget. How's that process been for you in terms of reflecting on 
your diabetes experiences and then translating that into messages for the diabetes community? You know, it's been such a fascinating process for me because most of the time you don't get asked how diabetes feels and what you wish healthcare providers knew. And if you do get asked, you get asked for a snippet, right? Like a once-off snippet. It'll be part of a talk. Or if I'm speaking to doctors, I won't give them the option. I'll just say, this is what you need to know about people with diabetes. But usually there's the option to say one or two things, like max three. So the first three were super easy. I had those lined up and knew exactly what I wanted to say, but it's been quite a few now. And it's so fascinating to me that as I've uncovered the obvious ones, the less obvious ones come up. And there's actually so much that I really want healthcare providers to know about people with diabetes because it's such a complex and fascinating condition. And I feel very honored and grateful to be able to be a spokesperson for our community and for people with diabetes and and to be able to bring these things into the light. So, yeah, thank you for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. What's pleasing for me is unlike in this country, around the world, there are expert patients who are utilized within clinical services, particularly in the NHS setting, and particularly useful as a means of the transmission of knowledge, skills. And as Michael and I have said over this podcast series, amending the attitudes and behaviors of healthcare workers. And I think you you typify that, Bridget. You are, in essence, an expert patient. I'm not sure I like that term. How do you you feel about that that, that, Mm. that title? Patient. One of my least favorite words, mainly because there was something so amazing. I think it was in one of the WHO Global Diabetes Forum chats. And one of the advocates said, patience is not a virtue when it comes to the rights of people with diabetes. And I wrote it down because I loved it so much. And also that people with diabetes aren't patient. We're impatient for change. We are are not happy to be sitting around slowly waiting. But this language thing is so fascinating. So Michael has been telling me, I want to say literally since we met, but (laughs) but definitely for the last two years, repeatedly over and over, (laughs) that we have to transform the way language is is handled around diabetes. And we are finally doing it this year. It's one of Sweet Life's big campaigns for the first half of the year. We've been working on it a lot lately, and it's around the language and imagery used in diabetes. So the language will be adapting the Global Language Matters position statement, which is so lovely. It was started by Diabetes Australia, and they've updated it recently in the last year or two. And it's so beautiful because it's for healthcare providers and for the media, but it's not top down. It's not saying like, don't use this word. Use this word instead. It's saying, here's why these words might be offensive for someone. Or here's why if you say, are you compliant at the beginning of an appointment with someone, it might set the whole appointment off on the wrong foot. Mm. And one of my favorite things is that they give alternatives. So they offer what the words that we're trying to move away from are. And then one of the alternatives was diabetes is not a top priority for me right now. And I've mentioned it in the snippets because I think it reframes the whole context around living with diabetes because I think it's very easy for healthcare providers to think that people with diabetes are other people with diabetes and that's what they're doing all day and it's like a bugbear for me anytime I get the chance I list all the exhausting things that I'm also doing in my day which are all the exhausting things you're doing in your day but then I also have to manage diabetes and then I want to talk about the photo shoot too but I don't want to hog the microphone we want so you I'll to. talk about it very briefly yeah. okay good <laughs> dangerous permission to give me I like hogging the microphone <laughs> 
in the last two weeks, we did a photo shoot. It's the first time it's been done in South Africa. I want to say it's maybe the first time it's been done in the world, but I'm not 100% sure about that. But we asked our community for volunteers who wanted to be a face for diabetes in South Africa. We got over 200 people responded, sending in their photos and their details. And we set up a photo shoot in Cape Town, so that narrowed it down a lot. We chose 10 models of different ages, races, genders, types of diabetes, body sizes. And it was so exciting because we had a full day professional photographer professional makeup artist and we did different scenarios so that was the hardest part right was deciding what needs to go on the shot list so it was things like testing blood glucose in different ways so testing with the glucometer testing by scanning testing by looking at a phone taking medication so taking metformin tablets injecting with syringes cooking and eating healthy food which was so fun because i don't know how to do any of this stuff right like i've never been on a photo shoot before so i just went and bought food that I wanted people to cook so that we could eat it for lunch. So then they were like chopping up the vegetables and then doing stir fry. And because none of the models were actually models, one of them actually ended up being a chef. It was so fun. Then we did a whole eating healthy food section. We did a whole advocacy bit. And again, I don't know how you make people look like they're talking about advocacy. So I just gave them a bunch of pages, like big sheets to draw on and permanent markers. And I was like, guys, here's an advocacy issue. I don't know how we're going to figure it out. And I threw the problem at them and then they worked it out while they were being photographed. It was so fun. And then had some nature shots of running in nature and, and doing exercise. And we're going to release all of these photos. I think there will be a couple of hundred, I think. We're going to release them all on Unsplash, which is the free media site that most of the media use. It's a free photography download site, and it can be used anywhere in the world, which is also very exciting because I hate that so often our imagery is of African-Americans, and now the Americans can be having imagery of South Africans, which pleases me enormously. And then we're also going to do a media event and chat to as many healthcare providers as possible and change... So it's about changing the language that we use when we talk about diabetes and when we talk about people living with diabetes. But then I think it's so powerful changing the imagery because what we see in the media impacts us so much. And what we see in healthcare settings, like the day I realized there was real urgency to do this, I had been to the pharmacy to pick up my medicine, not the CDE pharmacy, thank heavens, this would be a terrible story if it was a CDE pharmacy. And they had a rack on the wall of information leaflets. So like hypertension, pregnancy, cholesterol, and the diabetes one, the image on the diabetes leaflet was a plate full of sour worms with a fork in it as if it was being scooped up like spaghetti. Oh, no. And I was so livid when I saw that. But actually, the reason that designer chose that image is because they looked for free images for diabetes online. And the mm. second search result on Unsplash, which is the main used site at the moment, the second image when you search for diabetes is a plate of sugar with a teaspoon in it. Wow. So we're just going to flood the site with healthy happy, culturally relevant images of people with diabetes living their best lives. And I am very excited about it. As a passionate amateur photographer, this sounds just up my street, Bridget. And I look forward to seeing those images. Oh, and man. with your permission, can we use them in our academy teachings? Please. So that's the joy, right? Anyone can use them. Like they are freely available for anyone to use and anything they want to, because that's the whole point is we want to get these pictures of. And, and what is so lovely is that it's normal people, right? We specifically chose normal people. None of them are models. That's They're wonderful. attractive, but none of them are models. And it's like normal people on their best day because there was a professional makeup artist, but they were wearing their own clothes. I said, wear what makes you feel comfortable. Everyone was just mm. there. And the, our photographer is amazing. It's Mike Rose. He's 
a documentary photographer as well. And I asked him to shoot documentary style. So it just looks like people and they're not going to be airbrushed afterwards. It's just people. So anyone ever doing anything to do with diabetes is free to use these photos in any way they want to. I'm super excited about it. It's amazing because then at least people can see someone who looks like me. Exactly. And I think that's so incredibly powerful. Yeah. And if there's an article in the media about diabetes numbers are rising or like we've been trying to get in the media more, that's one of our big goals. And last year was much better. Diabetes was in the media much more. And then every time I saw an article about diabetes, I'd be like, oh, this is so great. And then I'd look at the picture and be like, oh my God, this is so terrible. Because it's dehumanizing pictures. So a lot of the time, and this is global, right? This is what happens. They publish pictures of people with diabetes, their heads are chopped off or they're taken from behind, or you only see the hands eating a burger and chips. It's not the right story. It's not the full story. It's not the respectful story. Whereas now there's an article about diabetes and then you see this gorgeous woman chopping oh. up stir fry. Mm. What a joy. With insulin pens in the front, I'm still on a high from it. It was last week, so I'm, I'm still on a high. As we've moved through this podcast series and having understood Michael's journey through the advocacy training he did, what's becoming apparent to me is advocacy, the noun, and now from what you said, advocacy, the verb, mm. where there's this muscular activism. It sounds as if it's very deliberate, very curated. Fantastic. It's nice to see it's not an activist type of approach. As we heard from Kirsten, I think Michael, maybe two or three podcasts ago, that it needs to be really considered in mm. order to get the right kind of message to the right kind mm. of people to make the right kind of changes. So for me, advocacy is now an extended narrative. I'm yeah. pleased to hear that, Bridget. I was very reluctant to start the advocacy journey at all. I'm not a natural advocate. I really like sitting in my office and writing. That's all I want to do and lie down and read my book. But <laughs> So maybe let's just stop you right there. I'm going to ask again the tongue-in-cheek question we always ask. We're seeing a very powerful, beautifully presented diabetes advocate. How did you get into diabetes, Bridget? I mean, does anyone have a choice getting into, into diabetes? Well, that's why it's a tongue-in-cheek <laughs> question. <laughs> so the reason I got into wanting to do diabetes education and advocacy was that when I was diagnosed, I was sent home with a stack of information. I had a very dramatic diagnosis. My doctor told me I was two days away from a coma. My blood sugar was off the charts. My mom flew me home from Cape Town. I'd just moved to Cape Town. The doctor wouldn't let me fly because my blood sugar was so high. I missed the flight. It was a whole thing. But when I was finally sent home, they sent me home with all these leaflets and it was so depressing. It all said, you're now at greater risk of blindness, amputation, heart disease, kidney failure, and nowhere in anything that I read, and I read everything I could find, did it say, or oh, you can live a perfectly happy, healthy, life with diabetes if you look after yourself. And so after a couple of years, when I realized that you could live a perfectly happy, healthy life with diabetes, my then boyfriend, now husband and I, we had been planning this overseas trip and then diabetes looked like it would derail it. We wanted to do a big six month trip and we did a traveling with diabetes series. So he's a photographer. I'm a writer. We recorded a bunch of videos. It was adorable. And it was in 2009, so ages ago, but we did Thailand, Cambodia, Vietnam, Indonesia, Brazil, and Argentina a month in each. And it was this amazing trip and hair-raising, many mm -hmm. hair-raising diabetes adventures that in my older wisdom now, I, I would be cautious of embarking on, but ignorance was bliss. And while we were on that trip, I thought, why don't we make a magazine? Because oh. that was the way you communicated with people was to start with a magazine. So we started with the quarterly magazine and we always had the website and the Facebook page. And then after five years, we moved entirely online. 
And at first I was so sad about that because I love magazines. I, I think you also love magazines, Michael. Mm. Oh man, something print and in your hands and something you can hold and connect to. Oh, it's so lovely. But you're talking one way yeah. with printed material. And so that was the surprising gift. The surprising gift of moving online is that then we really could become a community and people could talk back to us. And that's the most satisfying part of what we do now is we try to think of the Sweet Life website as a diabetes Wikipedia in South Africa. And we answer the questions our community has and we base all our content on the questions they have and get expert input, but base it on what people's real concerns are. And then the advocacy happened because I kept waiting for someone else to do it and no one did it. <laughs> and then eventually I'm impatient. And so eventually I was like, fine, okay, let's just do this. It's been such a joy because SA Diabetes Advocacy is the nonprofit umbrella that Kirsten was talking about. Mm. And it's all the organizations of people with diabetes all working together. And I just love collaboration. It's wonderful. That's the same thing with the Diabetes Alliance. All the organizations, associations, and companies working in diabetes in South Africa, all around the same table. I think there's such power in that because if we all work together, we can find a solution. And that's the same attitude that we're bringing to advocacy is I'm never going to stand with a sign outside a building and shout at people like it would give me a headache within <laughs> 10 minutes. I am not capable of doing that kind of advocacy, but I am capable of bringing together the right people and having very transparent conversations with them because I don't know what the rules are and, and what you are and aren't allowed saying. And so I think I say the wrong things a lot of the time. That's okay. Cause it starts the conversation. Mm. Yeah. And I am able to see where there's a gap, like this image gap. It's not that I've worked in the media for a long time. It's not that people in the media are trying to make people with diabetes feel bad. They're doing their best, but they mm. have a very tight deadline. They've been told they have to find a free image to go with this article. They've got seven other things they have to submit by one mm -hmm. o'clock. And so, okay, this one looks fine and it's high res. And so we'll go with it. So if we can just make it easy for people to do the right thing, mm. then I think they'll do the right thing. The healthcare thing is the other aspect of it, right? Because we also have to speak to healthcare providers. And, and I think it's the same thing there. I don't think anyone is wanting to use language that discriminates or judges. You've got to make it easy and attractive and like a cheat sheet. Mm. So that's the plan. Pleasingly for me is the idea that this is going to extend the diabetes narrative all day, every day, mm. because usually, Bridget, we get phoned at about midday on World Diabetes Day, and they'll say to the uh, secretary at our clinic, which of your doctors is free for a three-minute interval uh, to speak on the radio about diabetes? Oh, I know. Drives me nuts. And it will be, so what is diabetes? How is it diagnosed? And can you look after yourself? And, oh, that's all we have time for, listeners. And so it'll be great that people become more sensitized to it, more sensitized to the imagery and the language. My challenge, particularly in the teaching field, okay. is, is getting healthcare workers to adopt this mm. language. Michael said, perhaps they don't know any better. Mm. We're working very hard, which is why when I issue reports and I correct people's language, mm. you know, the word diabetes, for example, we often say things like, in the interests of collegiality and extending our teaching, it would be preferable to use the word person with diabetes. <laughs> and I guess many people aren't just aren't familiar with that term. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know what made it very clear for me was when Michael and I worked closely together on the Diabetes Summit in 2021 and put together South Africa's first diabetes charter. And we got input from loads of people living with diabetes in various work streams and various Huge. experts and all the organizations, everyone input on the same Google Doc, which was thrilling. And I really do love collaboration. I'm only realizing now when I talk about it. But a lot of people had used diabetic. And as I started replacing it, with people with diabetes, I realized what a difference it mm. made because diabetic is like a label and it puts you in, it, it corrals you into this space. And then all of a sudden, instead of saying diabetics are struggling to take their medication at the time, you're saying the people with diabetes are struggling to take the medication mm. and it's the people 
with diabetes are struggling to take their medication and the emphasis is on people. And so it's much harder to dehumanize them than if it's just this, oh, the diabetics are over there, not taking their medication, not exercising, not losing weight. It changes the judgment quite profoundly, I think. It opens up humanity. It shows that there's life going yeah. on and within life is diabetes. And then how yeah. do you integrate the two? Yeah. I think the Health at Every Size movement have done a lot on this historically, particularly in the North America period, looking at that imagery. And I know uh, my own wife, a registered dietitian, spends much of her day really calling industry out often for having used an overmass yeah. person on a scale to say, is this your future? Again, Ugh. you could say obese, you are obese, you are diabetic. Okay. And I think there are many similarities yeah. just in terms of that imagery and language. Bridget, you spoke about the Alliance. You spoke about a charter. What is the Diabetes Alliance? So the Diabetes Alliance is also a nonprofit. It's an association of all the diabetes organizations, associations, and companies. Anyone working with diabetes in South Africa, everyone is invited. We have quarterly meetings and we work closely with the National Department of Health in order to make diabetes a priority. So make the care of people with diabetes a priority because National Department of Health has a lot on their plate and they have to care about all the conditions equally. And we don't. We only have to push the agenda of diabetes. And we have the summit again this year. It'll be in November again this year. So every second year there's a diabetes summit. It was only online in 2021, but this year is going to be in real life in Pretoria, I think, Pretoria or Joburg. And also online, so it'll be hybrid. And it will focus on the most pertinent and relevant diabetes issues that need to be talked about and then brings in experts to talk about them. So what are the biggest stumbling blocks you're finding currently in terms of getting things done perhaps quicker? I mean, akin to the HIV, people were dying left, right and centre. It didn't look good on a government that they were ignoring their populace and denying antiretroviral treatment. Where are the stumbling blocks with diabetes in our country? So the HIV argument is so difficult, right? Because as you said, people were dying. They needed immediate treatment, but also the condition was so much more straightforward in many ways. There were risk behaviors. There was a primary risk behavior and a secondary risk behavior, and there was a drug that was needed. And if you could get people to practice safe sex and stop reusing needles and take the drug, then essentially the problem was largely fixed. And HIV activists will be furious at me for minimizing it like that, because I know there must be a lot more to it, but it is much more straightforward than diabetes, because the trouble with diabetes is, first of all, you can go for years without being diagnosed. Most people are going for years without being diagnosed. We know that one in two people with diabetes in South Africa is undiagnosed. You don't feel that bad. You feel kind of rubbish, mm -hmm. but most of us feel kind of rubbish, mm -hmm. it seems. And so you don't really notice it. When you are eventually diagnosed, you're given medication that in the public sector, the metformin isn't extended release. And so it often gives people diarrhea. So you were feeling okay. You start taking medicine that makes you feel much worse. And mm. there's no end site. It's chronic. It's forever. It's never going to go away. And at the same time, you're supposed to change your diet to things that you don't want to change it to and to things that the rest of your family is eating. You're supposed to lose weight, which is hard for anyone. Mm. And in many cultures is frowned upon, like weight loss has seen that there's something wrong with you. Yeah. And then you're supposed to exercise, which you probably don't really enjoy doing because you haven't been doing it. And then there's a stigma. There's a lot of stigma around men with diabetes because of the whole impotence thing. But like the whole conversation about language and imagery is that there's this, oh, you gave it to yourself mm, stigma yeah. around type 2 diabetes. I think it was intended to come from a good place. I think it was supposed to be the message of type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle condition. You can turn it around. But instead, the message that came through was type 2 diabetes is a lifestyle condition. You did this to yourself by eating the wrong kind of food and not exercising and not losing weight when you were supposed to. And so 
there's a lot of people who get a diabetes diagnosis and don't want it because it means that they've done something wrong. It's taboo. They have to change their life. They don't want to change their life. And then they have to take medication that makes them feel terrible. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of psychosocial and emotional things around diabetes that are fascinating. When I take a step back and look at the Diabetes Alliance and diabetes in South Africa as a whole, our biggest issue is we don't have any data. And that's kind of like the end of the sentence. We have no data. There's no registry. There's no electronic database of people with diabetes in clinics. So if you ask us how many people with diabetes there are, we got nothing. Nobody knows. You can kind of do a thumb suck, but, but not even really because... The IDF Atlas, which people look to for numbers, extrapolated our numbers from Tanzania for the last one, which is just ridiculous and an entirely different country and context, but there was nothing that they could work on. And so that should be the most glaring issue, right? WHO has brought in these diabetes targets. South Africa has agreed to them. South Africa has a national strategic plan with our own diabetes targets, but there's no way to measure anything. Like where are the people with diabetes? How many people are there? Do they have type one or type two? Do they have the right medication? Are they getting testing supplies? Are they in primary, secondary or tertiary care? We don't know any of these answers because there is no data. And there's no data because everything is still paper-based in 85% of the population who are accessing their care in the public sector it's paper-based. So if ever there was a, an ability to build an advocacy for literally brick by brick from the ground up, you know, data, interpretation of data, analysis, evaluation, intervention, assessment. Yeah. I mean, that's an incredible process to be driving everything simultaneously. And may I say, and you've said it a number of times, but I'll say it again, you're still having to live with diabetes whilst you're doing all of this all day, every day, and yeah. your day job, which is, you know, recognizing that people with diabetes are juggling an awful lot all the time. Yeah. Absolutely. And on the tail of the COVID pandemic, where we've seen huge problems with mental health worldwide, you've produced an amazing Sweet Life community advocacy message this week. So now that you're with us, Bridget, can you introduce it? I can. I don't really know how to introduce it. So I'm just going to say I wanted to acknowledge the mental health side of diabetes, which can have a profound impact on your blood glucose. So here's something we wish you knew. Here's what people with diabetes wish you knew. Mental health plays a huge part in our blood glucose readings. And I don't just mean diagnosed mental health conditions like diabetes burnout or depression or anxiety. I'm talking about having a fight with your significant other or a really stressful meeting that requires you to eat a treat afterwards because you're feeling so stressed out. Or kids who won't let you finish what it is that you're trying to do so you end up having a stressful afternoon. All those normal daily stresses that you have, that I have, People with diabetes have and they make a huge impact on their blood glucose. And what's difficult about that is that even if you're eating the right food, doing the exercise, taking your medication as prescribed, stress and mental health can still have a big impact on your blood glucose. And so it can feel quite demotivating when you see that in your results and if your doctor comes down too hard on you when he or she sees it in your results. So just try to be a little bit kind and empathetic if you can. Thank you so much for that advocacy message, Bridget. You really are adding so much value to this podcast and obviously to the overall advocacy effort in South Africa, which I've been in diabetes for nearly 30 years now. I have never seen the level of advocacy that I've seen now in the past few years, and it's largely emanating from the work that you are involved in. So thank you for that. 
Thank you. That's very kind. There's so many people working on it all at the same time. I just get to be the lucky one who talks about it a lot. <laughs> Making a difference. Yeah. Thank you. Richard, thanks a ton for joining us. It's been amazing for yeah. us to have a studio guest uh, come and you know, really inform us and our broader listener community in terms of what's happening in the field of diabetes. In your case, both as a person with diabetes and as a true advocate for wonderful diabetes care, not only in South Africa, I'll say, but perhaps adding to the global benefits that mm. you bring to all of this. Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure talking to you today. And thank you for doing this podcast and putting so much time and care and attention into it. It's so valuable and we really appreciate it. Our pleasure and passion. Thank you. Bye. Michael, there's an awful lot that people need to do in respect to the management of their diabetes, and it takes a toll. We've heard that in many of the snippets we've played over the previous podcast, and COVID has brought to the attention the ability for us to include mental health matters now in conversations. It was historically something that was typically quite taboo, didn't really gain a lot of airtime, mm -hmm. and I'm pleased to say that within day-to-day -day conversations, at least within my own clinic, mental health matters are coming to the fore. You've been in diabetes education for you know three decades. What's your sense of, of kind of mental health diabetes and that close and intimate link? I think that you cannot self-manage a chronic condition like diabetes unless your mental health is in the best shape it can be. Now, one recognizes that mental health issues are pervasive amongst many people, but it should be picked up. Firstly, I think we need to remove any possible stigma around mental health. If someone gets gastroesophageal reflux disease, for example, we don't have a particular stigma against that. You have heartburn and you take a tablet to remedy that and you take lifestyle measures to address that. So why if someone has depression or anxiety, does that suddenly bear stigma with it? It doesn't make sense to me. So I think firstly, we do need to address the issue of stigma that almost let he or she who is without mental health issues of any nature throw the first stone. And I think there'd be very few people who could do that. I think we all have mental health challenges at some stage in our life, whether it's work-related stress, family-related stress, uh, load shedding, lack of water, lack of electricity, all kinds of things, lack of money, which is a huge thing post-COVID where many people, many millions of people have lost their jobs. So mental health is an issue for, I'd say, the majority of our population. And so if we can get past the stigma and get to a point where we are comfortable to talk about mental health issues with our support system, that being our family and our friends, and then with our healthcare professionals so that we can bring those things to fore. So for example, if you're depressed, we know healthcare professionals, we talk about vegetative signs and symptoms of depression where you lack drive, you lack energy, your libido goes out the window, you can eat more or less and so on. And so straight away, some of the fundamental aspects that we need to self-manage a chronic condition like diabetes are already at risk. And so if we don't recognize that and we don't treat the underlying mental health issue, we are going to go nowhere with self-management in the physical realm of a chronic condition. Very well put. You know, keeping with the broader advocacy message, you have to be a good advocate for your own health and well-being. Mm. As we spoke to our studio guest in terms of the eating disorder podcast, we know that if you're sitting with somebody whose diabetes management isn't great, their HbA1c may be elevated. Escalating the insulin doses without knowing the true reasons behind all of this will lead you down a dangerous path potentially, mm. and you will have missed much of the most important aspects of why management may have gone astray. And if you can be open and honest, and if you have the privilege of sitting with 
a group of healthcare workers who are not judgmental, then you're likely to find the support and care you're going to need to enhance the management of your diabetes over the long term. Mm. And so I think the question we brought up in a previous podcast, the first question we ask in an acute healthcare setting, so what's wrong today? We should never ask that in the diabetes environment or chronic care environment. It always should be something like, doesn't have to be a script, but something like, so how are you today? It's a very open question. It leaves the floor open for discussion of anything that may pertain to your diabetes care. In a diabetes consultation, healthcare professionals often focus on the behaviors of the person with diabetes. So for example, you need to eat less of that, more of that. You need to be a bit more active. And what we forget is what drives those behaviors. And at the end of the day, it's our attitudes, values, and beliefs that drive the eventual behaviors. So it makes sense to me as a diabetes educator that we should be focusing on more of the underlying drivers of behavior than the actual behavior itself. Over the past few weeks, we've been introducing some essential tools in your journey with diabetes self-management and diabetes care or facilitation of diabetes care. The last one in our series is a vital one, and it is, who am I? The core values that drive our eventual behaviors. Essential tools for your journey in diabetes care. Whether you are a person living with diabetes or a practicing health professional working in the field, these tools will help you along your way. Our last tool is almost like a life compass that keeps us on course. Let's explore the important question, who am I? The answer is determined by your core values. Values are basic and fundamental beliefs that guide or motivate our attitudes and actions. Values are captured in words like love, loyalty, autonomy, openness and honesty. Your values are things that you believe are important in the way you live and work and they help you to decide what really matters to you and your life priorities. Values are usually fairly stable in the short term, but as you move through life and grow in experience and wisdom, your personal values may change. This is why keeping in touch with your values is a lifelong exercise which you should continuously revisit, especially if you start to feel that your life is off course and you don't know why. In this way, we can use our values to measure if our life is turning out the way we want it to. When your life and the things that you do match your values, life usually feels good. You feel satisfied and content. But when your life doesn't align with your personal values, things feel wrong and deep unhappiness may result. Values exist whether we are aware of them or not. Your life can be much easier when you consciously work to discover your personal values and acknowledge them by making plans and decisions that honor them. Try the following approach to discovering your core values, bearing in mind that values that were important in the past may not be relevant now. When you define your personal values, you discover what's truly important to you. A good way of starting the process is to start with an open mind. Now, create a list of around 10 personal values using the following three steps. First, look back on your life. Think of a time when you felt really good and really confident that you were making good choices. At that time, what was happening to you? What were you feeling and thinking? What values were you honoring? Then consider times when you've suppressed your important values, times when you were angry or frustrated. What was going on? What were you feeling and thinking? 
What values did you actually suppress? Finally, consider your personal code of conduct. What's most important in your life? So, beyond your basic human needs, what must you have in your life to experience fulfillment? What are the personal values that you must honor or a part of you just withers? What values represent your primary way of being? Once you've done that, it's time to clarify your value list and to rank them in order of priority. Use the following questions to do this. And out of your list of 10, try to end up with an eventual list of 5. So, how do you fill your space? How do you spend your time? How do you spend your energy? How do you spend your money? Once you have your set of top 5 personal core values, reflect. Are you living these values? If not, what are you going to do about this? Finally, does health appear as one of your top 5 personal values? If not, what are the implications for fulfilling your personal core value set and for achieving successful daily diabetes self-management? Michael, thanks for sharing that very practical application that people with diabetes could use in their ongoing management of what really is a complex condition. But with good support, utilization of excellent tools and enablers, I think the outcomes can really be satisfactory, allowing people to live their best and healthiest life. Much like these podcasts, advancing the conversation within the aspects of diabetes management is key from beginning to end. And speaking of end, that brings us to the end of this particular podcast. Again, wonderful to have a studio guest with us, giving us those real insights as healthcare providers for ourselves to take away with learnings, but hopefully for the benefit of our listenership here who have chosen to join us. Remember, if you are joining us, give us a like, pass this on on your own social network, and we encourage all of our listeners, as has been done over the past several weeks, drop us a question, drop us your thoughts and comments. We'd be delighted to hear of your own experiences. Perhaps you're looking to become part of the advocacy movement, which is really a groundswell at this point in time. That email address as always is podcast at cdediabetes.coza. Right. And remember our listener polls and questions we post with each podcast on Spotify. Please participate. Let us know what your responses are and help us to shape the future of this podcast. Remember, it's not our podcast. It's your podcast. We are here to serve you and help us to serve you in the best way we can. And that's a wrap from me from Stan Landau. And I look forward for you to join us on the next episode. So once again, thanks for being with us and we wish you a blessed week ahead. Thank you for joining us on Not Artificially Sweetened, where we aim to build bridges of insight and understanding between people with diabetes and the health professionals that facilitate their care. Anything we discuss is for your reflection, education, personal growth and entertainment only. You join this podcast at your own risk, and we are not responsible for any omissions, errors or unwanted medical outcomes. Please note the following important specific disclaimers. For people with diabetes, the health professionals on this podcast are not your personal caregivers. Always discuss any new information with your diabetes team before acting on any aspect of it. The views and opinions discussed are those of the hosts only and do not represent those of any other entity. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you encounter in this session. Anything you learn or experience here cannot substitute for personalized, professional medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. For health professionals working in diabetes, always discuss any new information with your clinical team before acting on any aspect of it. 
You are personally accountable and liable for any choices made in a clinical setting according to your level of training and legal scope of practice. Any information or insights gained here must be used with your professional discretion and with the developing base of clinical evidence, local and organizational laws, regulations, guidelines and protocols. Good luck with your diabetes care missions. Till next time. And it's a wrap. Yay!